Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to an episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Liz Barrett, and I'm very happy today to be interviewing Dr. Debbie Felton. Professor Felton not only wrote Haunted Greece and Rome, Ghost Stories from Classical Antiquity, which would be perfect for this time of year, but also equally perfect monsters and monarchs, serial killers in classical myth and history published by University of Texas Press in 2021. I mean, what is actually scarier than ghost stories? Serial killers. And turns out they've been here all along. Debbie, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me, Liz. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, about me generally. Well, I'm I teach at the University of Massachusetts in, in Amherst, Massachusetts, in the Department of Classics. And uh I my my work generally is about folklore and mythology, ancient folklore and mythology, and I teach classes that are related to that. So I teach a course on magic in the ancient Mediterranean. Sometimes I teach Greek myth. I teach courses on uh, Greek and uh, Latin ghost stories. So like classical and medieval Latin ghost stories, ancient Greek ghost stories in the original languages. So those classes are for our upper level Greek and Latin students. And uh, on completely different uh, uh, level, I, I teach a basic course on medical terminology. Uh, that's the one I offer most frequently, actually, because it's uh, a lot of people want to take that. Wow, that's fantastic. So um, magic in the Mediterranean myth. Wow, I, that reminds me, I recently read a book, uh, a novel, which was really fantastic. It was um, Thirsty. Um, uh, Madeline Miller's book. Yep, yep. Yeah. I just read that. I, I read that. Was it last year? Um, yeah, it was. It was beautiful. Her writing is so beautiful. Really, is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, back to monsters and monarchs. Um, what is it about scary stories and classics that have so much allure? Oh, um, you, you mean the combination of the yes, yes. classic? Um, I, you know, allure is an interesting way to put it. Do you mean for me personally or just why I think anyone might want to read about it? Well, I mean, we can start with you personally and we can expand to, you know, everyone else. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, right now, so recently, I haven't finished it, but Dahmer is on um, <laughs> one of the channels. and. Um, you reference him in your book. So I really think, um, and you also talk about, I mean, I think terms are so important to your work because the term serial killer, of course, is very recent. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, can you talk about that a little bit first, maybe then? Oh, yeah. Well, I can, I mean, I can answer your initial question too. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I sort of, yeah, just uh, stop me if I'm getting too off track, but. Uh, yes. Yeah, so when I was growing up, I was very interested in, in classical mythology and folklore in general, but I did read a lot of Greek mythology. And I was also interested in ghost stories. Um, and I think this is partially because uh, my dad actually was interested in ghost stories. We had a lot of books around the house, like these ghost story anthologies, um, you know, Victorian and 20th century uh, ghost stories. And so when I ended up in the field of classics, which was kind of like, you know, a circuitous route, because I had never heard of classics until I was like, a senior in college, I kid you not. Um, I started thinking about, well, are there intersections? Like, are there classical ghost stories? Are there stories, about, are there other scary stories besides the ones in, you know, myth about monsters? And what about serial killers? And the serial killers part is uh, just sort of unfortunately, because I grew up in Los Angeles in the 1960s and 70s, and uh, the Charles Manson and his family were prominently in the news for many, many years, uh, not only for the killings, but for the trials that went on and on and on. And we also, um, like the Zodiac Killer was still in the news too, because he was never found. And, uh, you know, Hillside Stranglers, there just seemed to be an unusual number 
of serial killers floating around California in uh, the period when I was growing up. And so we, they were just constantly in the news as if it were some sort of a new phenomenon. Uh, aside from Jack the Ripper, you know, over in the 1880s in, in, in England, uh, these are mostly the people that I heard about was the ones in, in California. And so eventually uh, it occurred to me to see whether there were any similar stories from classical antiquity. And you mentioned the, the just the, the term serial killer. Well, that that didn't exist before what, the 1970s or even the 1980s. And it's no, so it's not like the Greeks and Romans had some special term or phrase for the equivalent of what we would think of as a serial killer, somebody who kills, you know, more than one person, more than two people usually over a period of time and by similar methods is the general working definition. And it's not like the Greeks and Romans had anything like that, but it's it's clear from the stories and some historical records that, that they that have survived that they did know of crimes like that. They just didn't have a separate word for it other than killer or murderer. Right, and so they came up with stories that they would tell in order to explain this phenomena. So one of the stories was the Sphinx, which sounds absolutely terrifying. Can you talk about how you wove that into your book and how you link it with modern society? Because I found this fascinating. Well, it's nice of you to say so. So you're, you're asking about the Sphinx from the story of Oedipus, right? Right, the Theban it's Sphinx. The Theban Sphinx. So because there were um, the Sphinx was just uh, sort of a hybrid monster that existed long before it appeared in that particular story. And like a lot of mythological monsters, the, the Sphinx in the Oedipus story, the Sphinx was famous for her riddle. And anyone who couldn't solve her riddle, she, she would kill. Uh, and her riddle was, you know, what goes on four legs in the morning, two legs at noon and three legs in the afternoon. And the answer is, is man or a human being because they crawl on all fours as an infant and walk upright on two legs in adulthood and then need a cane uh, in, in old age. So uh, the Sphinx represents a lot of things besides just uh, reflecting what we think of as serial killer behavior. Uh, she, she had a riddle that uh, she wanted people to solve it, and she targeted young men specifically as they were the ones who would go out and try to solve her riddle because she was basically blocking the town of Thebes, uh, people entering and exiting. It was just cut off from the larger Greek society. And so while, again, the, the Theban Sphinx has a lot of other associations, she does resemble what we think of as serial killers in the sense that she had a particular method of killing a particular victim type, which is young men. And um, uh, so there was a pattern, basically. And there was a sexual subtext to some of it as well. And uh, there was even uh, a sort of a connection with with disability in terms of Oedipus himself, who solved the riddle having uh, a bad leg. You know, he was sort of limping himself. So, I mean, that, uh, in other words, there are a lot of different threads associated with modern serial killers that tie into that story. I, you know, we don't want to say that, oh, yes, the Sphinx was made up for this story to definitely uh, reflect a local serial killing in the area of Thebes. So we don't want to say anything as specific or restrictive uh, as that. But we we do want to say that a lot of these monsters uh, from stories around the world do seem to reflect an understanding of serial killing. These were not young men that were sacrificed to the Sphinx. These were young men who were killed by the Sphinx by a particular method, uh, possibly strangulation. But uh, and she had and her particular method was to ask a riddle before killing them. And there is this whole connection with riddling killers, actually, including like the Riddler from, you know, Batman stories. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm cleverer than you and I'm going to prove it. And if you can't solve my riddle, I'm going to kill you kind of uh, motif. Yeah, I, I really, the way you weave it all together and explain how there's these sort of archetypes in myth and the, the, the types of myths themselves that are indicative of certain kinds. So for example, you talk about um, the bluebeard type. Right. So yeah. do you want to, can you explain <laughs> that a little bit more? 
Sure. Well, there's a sort of subset of serial killing stor stories. I'm going to say stories, not historical records, although there are those too in, in later time periods. But there's this whole subset of stories where you've got what we call bluebeards, which are husbands who kill uh, wives, who kill their wives, like they'll kill one and then they'll remarry and kill another and they keep killing wives. So they're called bluebeards after the folktale or fairy tale of a man literally <laughs> called Bluebeard because of the shade of his beard, who did kill his wives and kept the, kept all their corpses locked up in a room in his castle. Uh, we also have the Black Widows, which is basically the female version, which are women who kill a series of husbands and sometimes even other family members also. And uh, both Blackbeards, sorry, <laughs> that's a pirate, sorry. <laughs> Black, Widows, <laughs> Black Widows and Bluebeards uh, uh, both basically are, are serial killers of spouses, and they do seem to reflect, uh, you know, real a real type of serial killer. That may not be the reason the stories were originally told, but we do find the actual serial killing patterns reflected in those stories. Any anyway, however, those stories came up, um, they they definitely reflect a real life phenomenon. You also um, discussed the the Bluebeard legend in this way, which I thought was really interesting, which was how um, the wife is told, um, don't go in this room. Um, and she gets the key and she goes in the room and that's when she sees all the body parts and she drops the key and the key is stained red. So you talk about um, this could be kind of a metaphor for um, a story that, you know, mothers would tell their daughters about, you know, you could, uh, when you have sex with your husband, you can get pregnant and that can kill you. And so the key being stained red, um, just the way that you sort of link, you know, kind of our common sense sort of modern thought about linking things to a real metaphor from the past is really great. I loved it. <laughs> I mean, I think I think some of those, you know, interpretations are called from other sources. I mean, because there's another one that the the key with the blood on it, you know, you insert the key in the the hole, and now there's blood on the key, um, is a metaphor for lost virginity, also. So before you even get to the the pregnancy and the 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 high uh, mortality weight, uh, rate for, for women giving birth in certain points in history and the, uh, along with, uh, I mean, basically the death and childbirth is, yeah, I mean, there are just a lot of different ways to interpret these, these stories. Uh, so it's, it's fun to think about what they could mean and why they were told. And certainly if your wife died in childbirth, you would get married again and possibly lose <laughs> another wife to childbirth. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah. <laughs> It's true. It's it's sad and it's true. So from the Bluebeards to the Black Widows, right? So tell us about this type of killer in antiquity and in myth and maybe now, what do we have? So for Black Widows, more you mean specifically. So mm -hmm. um, like uh, like we were talking about before, the Black Widow is the female version really of the Bluebeard in terms of this is someone who uh, marries and kills her husbands, but also potentially other family members, like more so more so than a bluebeard who might kill uh, wives and maybe some offspring, but the black widow type uh, kills husbands, but also basically any other uh, people who kind of get in the way of what she wants, whatever she thinks her happiness is going to be, if that's an inheritance or just control or just attention. And so the Black Widow can sometimes even be a woman suffering from Munchausen, Munchausen syndrome by proxy, just liking to have all the attention because oh, her, her child has died or her husband has died. And they generally have to be careful because if they kill enough people, uh, it, it starts being a little more obvious that, gee, all of your close family members are dying. This is more than a coincidence. Uh, anyway, in terms of antiquity, uh, for both the Bluebeard and the Black Widow, it can be hard to find examples that are like as clear as the ones from later folktale and more modern society. But there are certainly um, 
examples and also reasons why there are fewer. So for example, in terms of black widows in antiquity, women led much more guarded lives uh, in ancient Greece and Rome than they do now in terms of being allowed to go out on their own without being accompanied by a male family member. Uh, they didn't have as much social freedom. And this was partially because their husbands wanted to make sure that any offspring that the woman had, you know, the, 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 the paternity, the father was known. And if you let the women go out by themselves, so clearly they cannot be trusted and they will have affairs and you'll never be sure if the child is yours or not. And you don't want to leave your inheritance to a male child, especially who's not yours. So women led much more guarded lives. So it's, um, less easy to find examples of black widows, but some, sometimes you can point to uh, a Roman woman of the imperial family, like Messalina, for example, the wife of the Emperor Claudius. Uh, he was 30 years older than she was. And in terms of our historical sources, because she's a historical figure, the, the, the issue is always, well, how biased are your sources? I mean, you have some Roman his, writers of history who just really hated the imperial family or hated specific people in it. So you're not going to get like a very... Uh, you know, neutral view of some of these characters, but there seems to be have been a lot of agreement that Messalina, the wife of Claudius, was uh, a pretty horrible person in terms of being highly adulterous, maybe even nymphomaniac, uh, power power crazy to the extent that uh, anybody that disagreed with her, anybody that she took a dislike to, she would convince Claudius, her husband, the emperor, to have them executed, and she could lie about reasons like, oh well, he tried to rape me or something when really it was that she wanted to have sex with him and the the guy like didn't want to because he knew what kind of trouble he could get and if he did and so there are all sorts of stories along those lines that if she was jilted she would accuse the the guy of actually uh being inappropriate with her or you know maybe uh, I mean, there are a lot of other reasons, like someone just wouldn't do what she said or threatened to to tell Claudius, not that he believed, you know, anything bad about her. Uh, so she uh, she wasn't killing her husbands. Uh, she was killing her lovers. She was having them executed. There are differences. She wasn't killing them herself. Right. Well, you've got you've got these uh, these black widows in later history, like Marianne Cotton or Bell Guns or what have you, who actually poison the people themselves. Like they will poison their own family members, their husbands, their children, their in-laws. Whereas someone like Messalina wasn't killing anyone by her own hand. She was causing their deaths by telling her husband to have them executed. So, uh, but but the motivations could be, you know, similar in, in some senses. So here's someone who's standing in the way of, of, of what I want. So let's get rid of them. Yeah, I mean, um... Clearly, I guess she's taking advantage of the power that she had. And why get her hands dirty if she doesn't have to? <laughs> let's <laughs> stay on the imperial Roman family for a minute. Uh, let's talk about Nero and his mother. <laughs> okay. So um, Agrippina, Nero's mother, is another one who um, we would I, we would want to call her a, a black widow. Uh, necessarily, she's again, it's not the serial killing of spouses or lovers in her case but she she definitely wanted her son Nero to have to become emperor and have power so she would try to see to it that anyone who stood in the way of that uh, lineage uh was <laughs> killed somehow whether that meant hiring a poisoner herself or you know hiring hiring a hitman she 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 does seem to have been responsible for quite a few deaths uh, you know, again, of, of um, younger male family members who stood in the way uh, in the more direct line of, of becoming emperor than her son Nero did. And, uh, you know, and Nero himself then tried to at one point ha have his mother killed because, I mean, just uh, so many reasons. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, he had several failed attempts at having his mother executed uh, before he finally managed to have uh, some soldiers go ahead and do that. And uh, I mean, Nero, uh, I mean, he was so, um, again, with 
you know, viewing him through our sources, which clearly people who clearly hated him are the ones who wrote the history. He was pretty depraved, according to them. And he himself, uh, you know, they describe him in terms that we would think of uh, as modern serial killer terms. So the background they give us on Nero is that even when he was a boy, he was showing depraved behavior and uh, a lack of empathy and uh, disregard for human life he was acting out he would uh, as he was growing up he would um cause fights like bar fights for example he'd crack people's heads you know with with benches and things he supposedly went out and and uh, in disguise and killed people how these historians would know that it was nero in disguise you know for example is not <laughs> clarified um and we have to take a lot of this information with a grain of salt but nero was clearly loathed by by huge numbers of people. And, uh, you know, as he grew up, I mean, the stories just basically continued in terms of he set things on fire, he had people killed or killed them himself, which is, you know, the interesting part that is more resembling modern serial killers. And, uh, you know, he had all of these um, sexual, uh, what would be called sexual deviances in terms of who he was attracted to, what the, uh, he made them dress up as, <laughs> for example. And uh, it just basically is sort of continued as, as he grew up and became emperor. He and his mother sort of conspired to have various people poisoned who stood in his way. Um, so there was a lot going on with Nero. This is again, not to say that Nero, the emperor Nero was definitely a serial killer. The point is that these historians knew enough about what we would think of as serial killers to describe Nero in those terms, including the background, like the really disturbed childhood with the absent parents and then the acting out and the getting in fights and the escalation of the violence. I mean, supposedly he raped people, you know, again, it's, and then, you know, moved on to killing people. So, uh, but with uh, Nero, you don't have the sort of, say narrow patterns that you might associate with modern serial killers in terms of a consistent method of, of killing people or even uh you know doing it at intervals i mean with nero he was just all over the place uh you know right. what's interesting about the accounts of him is that background information that fits in with what we think of in terms of modern serial killers I should probably put in a disclaimer that I am not a criminologist and I'm also not a psychologist. <laughs> so this is more like the pop culture approach to serial killing. But we, you know, my point really is that we we do see it in the ancient world. Uh, right. People thought, well, that can't be it's something there's there's so much tendency to think of serial killing as a fairly modern phenomenon, even if you only start with Jack the Ripper, that's still not that long ago, like you know, 140 years or or less. Um, well, exactly. I mean, and that's that's the sort of, you know, the evolution of how we understand behavior. So we've only learned about, you know, coined the term serial killer, like you said, in the in the 70s or 80s. And so without having sources from antiquity saying Nero was clearly a serial killer <laughs> and good thing that, you know, we took care of that. Um, <laughs> we yeah. didn't, you know, sorry. <laughs> is kind of, you know, the point of looking back and then trying to interpret what sources we have in order to say, okay, well, he exhibits these types of behaviors. So this tells us a lot about how he influenced culture, society, politics, yeah. all the discourses that we like to bring up. Um, so staying with Nero a little bit longer. Let's sure. talk about Locusta of Gaul. <laughs> right, right. So I mentioned that Nero and his mother tended to um, have people killed. And one of the ways they did this was uh, via an infamous woman poisoner, um, Locusta of Gaul, Locusta. I'm actually not sure um, what the best way is to say her, her name these days, Locusta of, of Gaul, um, but like Locust or something, <laughs> Locusta of Gaul. So one of, the, one of the things to notice uh, about her is that she is referred to as Locusta of Gaul. So Gaul was not Rome, right? It, Gaul was like what is now modern France. And so part of what seems to be going on with her is this, let's make sure we identify her as a foreigner because, you know, sh you know we don't want to like Romans getting famous for being poisoners. Um, so there's there's something going on there in terms of the constant um, 
reference to her as you know, in terms of where she's from, because they didn't do that with everybody. The Roman Empire was huge and they didn't always add the of Gaul or, you know, of North Africa or whatever when they were referring to people. So she stood out in that in that respect. And Locusta was um, interesting uh, or stood out because she grew so famous as a professional poisoner. Like this was, this was her profession. I mean, this is another reason why, um, you know, again, the the shifting definition of like, what do we think of really as a serial killer? Locusta did it for, she was a poisoner for hire. We don't, if she poisoned a bunch of people on her own, we don't have those stories. What we know is that she was hired by Nero uh, and his mother to poison people, including uh, the Emperor Claudius. Um, and uh, Britannicus, uh, one of the other heirs, potential heirs to the uh, the imperial throne. So, uh, and we have these stories of Lacusta testing her poisons, like, oh, let's try it on a goat or a pig and make sure it works before we try it on Claudius or someone, uh, because we don't want her to, or on Britannicus, because they want these things to work the first time and not become suspicious. But Lacusta seems to even have like taught other people her skill in poisoning and the fact that she was so renowned and was able to get away with this for such a long time is partially because Nero kept pardoning her uh, when he finally died uh, his successor <laughs> had her executed basically so it was, was not as tolerant of open like openly famous poisoners and poison was a fairly common method of, of trying to kill people surreptitiously. You couldn't necessarily prove that, you know, who had done it necessarily. And again, we're dealing with biased sources. So the historian Tacitus says, oh, it was Locusta of Gaul that they got it from. Well, maybe, you know, on the other hand, the story is so well known and pops up in other places. Locusta was so famous as a poisoner that other authors mention her. Uh, so it's just very weird how someone could be known to be a provider of poisons and that somehow wasn't illegal or illegal enough to have her you know re removed and jailed which right. she was. At, at some point she was you know but she never stayed in prison for very long mm -hmm. um so that also ties into not just the bias of sources but sort of you know maybe modern bias or the ways that um we now tend to, you know, sensationalize certain things. Locusta's execution sent me on um, a footnote and internet search rabbit hole. So you reference in the book that she was executed by being raped by a giraffe. So <laughs> I've looked this up. Can you basically walk me through your footnote on that one? Yeah, so that is a false story, actually. So I had to do what you're saying you did, mm -hmm. because this did not sound right, actually. And like, where did that story come from that Lacusta was executed by being raped by a giraffe? What's going on there? Um, so it seems to be a conflation of various stories. We can say uh, pretty certainly that she, that is not how she died, that she was executed, but there was no giraffe involved. Um, this uh, seems to have been, it's really hard to trace where the story actually first came from. I know that a serial killer, like the first edition of a particular serial killer book had that story in it and some people got it from there. Um, in fact, I think Catherine Ramsland, who has been interviewed on, on Newbrook's network, uh, who, who was in the past, she had noticed that story in there and wondered about it her, herself when she was writing some of her serial killer books. And that, that serial killer book that put in that story about Lacusta being raped to death by a giraffe, uh, that particular book didn't cite a source, um, but other people cited his, his book. I noticed that in the second edition of that book, that story was gone. So at some point, someone most, must, must have pointed out to that person. Obviously, I'm trying not to name the author because I don't want to embarrass anybody. <laughs> um, but he, he must have noticed or been told or, or been informed that that was not an accurate story. What seems to have happened was that uh, someone somewhere along the line, not in antiquity, but at a later point, conflated stories about um, animals in the arena versus executions 
related to animals. There, there were stories of women being punished by uh, being raped, perhaps by a giraffe or a donkey or some, something along those lines, but Lacusta was not one of those women. And we don't know the extent to which those things, like, like to what extent those were in stories, but not so much in real life. So wow. it's a little hard to sort it out. I think, um, uh, I think, uh, I, yeah, it's, <laughs> we know that that did not happen to Lacusta. We know there are stories where women were raped by animals in the arena. One about a donkey comes to mind. Uh, not sure about the giraffe. There were, there were animal trainers. There were people who would train the animals to do those things in the arena by using like this, the scent glands from female giraffes or female animals and smearing them on the women who were going to be tortured and executed in that way. But that is not how Locusta herself died. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Um, that's, that's shocking. Um, so to kind of pivot a little bit. <laughs> when, is this what you found this, when you went down that rabbit hole? Did you like, well, all I found was that the, um, the giraffe raping did not happen, but I right. didn't dig far enough in, and this is the difference between real scholarship and <laughs> <laughs> reading a book and being um, intrigued by things on the page, right? So um, is that finding out that at the other end of it, there really was uh, cases of women being executed through bestiality practices. Yeah. That's, that's shocking and awful. Yeah, but that's really horrific. Yeah. Not surprising. I mean, so it's not surprising in the sense, not that, um, and I, and I'm not, I don't want to judge any society, right? So not that they had, but that they had different um, customs and sets of morals and uh, beliefs, and they celebrated things that um, we don't celebrate in the same way or that we abhor. So, and also now, I mean, you know, we watch uh, reenactments, like I, I referenced the show Dahmer earlier, yeah. So we watch these, you know, true crime, um, we listen to true crime podcasts, we watch true crime on TV, it's a fascination. Um, so I do wonder, and so you bring in something else in this book, which going back to the Sphinx and, you know, other killers that sort of inhabited roadways, you talk about like, Rome was this sprawling empire that had roadways that linked for troop movements and communications. So also you talked about your childhood in California in the 60s and 70s in the period when, you know, during the Cold War, the roads are getting set, you know, the interstates getting built throughout the United States. So do you wanna elaborate on that a little bit more too? Oh, sure. In terms of like how much easier it is for serial killers to sort of be predatory on roadways, for, mm -hmm. for example, there is definitely a lot of, of, of a lot of connections there. And um, so even I mean, it goes back even before the Romans were building their own roadways, because you can take it all the way back to like 3000 years ago when uh, say in ancient Greece, people were finally starting to, to move out a little more, but uh, there's a sort of xenophobia involved in terms of, well, I, I'm, I'm afraid of the people I might meet, you know, in these other places and they're different from me and I don't know what to expect and I'm not sure how safe it is to travel. And yet people were traveling to try to open up trade routes and out of a sense of exploration. So they had mixed feelings about spreading out beyond the confines of their known areas. But you, so for example, before you even get to the Roman road network, you have stories of um, myth logical heroes like like Heracles Her no, uh, with his his Roman name is Hercules but Heracles to the Greeks he was um, a lot of his adventures involved going out and traveling very far and he'd meet these dangers on on the roadways and a lot of those were people who remind us of serial killers because they do have specific methods of killing and they take trophies and this and that. So the the whole association of serial killers with roadways would seem to go back really, really far, um, depending again on how, uh, you know, how the extent to which you want to consider some of those adventures as being very serial killer-like, that is the people that Heracles met. And then by the time you get to Rome, 
And their empire is like so vast. It's like North Africa, Gaul over, you know, towards India, et cetera. And you don't have enough troops to really monitor the roads. I mean, the ancient Greeks and Romans didn't have anything like modern police forces, even within towns. A lot of it was more like a neighborhood watch kind of thing. Um, so, the, so the point there is that like, it was much easier for highway robbers and uh, similar predators to be out there on the roads to attack people and to not be caught, but to leave behind, you know, local stories of, oh my God, we kept finding mutilated bodies on, you know, on the side of the road or people keep disappearing in this spot. What's happening to them? So there, uh, we find that quite a few stories uh, from ancient Greece and Rome, quite a few stories that sound a little bit like serial killing stories happen on the roadsides. Uh, someone's uh, traveling, I, and this this is like in the story of the Greek hero Theseus, for example, someone is, uh, you know, weary, weary travelers meet somebody who says, hey, I have a little like hotel here, which back then meant like a hut with a cot in it, right? <laughs> so do you want to spend the night there for like, for cheap? And then you go to this stranger's house and, and they, they'd murder you, um, but they'd torture you first. So uh, so we have stories like that dating back quite quite far. And with the Romans, the highway killers, like highwaymen especially seem to have been a real concern because people were traveling much farther and a lot of the people traveling were, were richer than they used to be as well, like merchants and all. So you, we have these stories of highway killers under the, the Roman Empire, some of whom did not work in groups. I mean, if you've got a group of highwaymen and they're basically beating you up and taking your money, that's one thing. If you've got a lone highwayman who is torturing you uh, and then killing you and chopping your body into bits and throwing the bits around in the forest, you've got something that sounds more like a serial killer than a robber. And in fact, a lot of the stories didn't even, you know, that didn't even focus on the robbing aspect. They focused on the murder mutilation aspect, which again is far more serial killer-like than just a typical robber mugger. Yeah. You also talk about how, um, there was um, an exercise, I believe, in rhetoric in oh, yeah. school and how, so it wasn't just that, you know, we in our society look back at these sources and hear these stories and create fictions based on them. Um, they did it too. Can yeah. you talk about that? Yeah, that's, um, that's one of, that's one of the stories from uh, the ancient world that really sounds the most I mean there are a lot of good stories but that one that one is so detailed that it really has probably the most in it that like resembles the story of a serial killer so what what you're referring to is a rhetorical exercise meaning it's a fictional speech basically so it's a fictional story that was told to school children um maybe maybe on the older side who are maybe training for public speaking or or uh, to be a public defender or prosecutor actually and so this was a practice speech against a murderer but the murderer, and they had lots of those. I mean, they had lots of practice speeches and actual real speeches that had been recorded, you know, maybe embellished a little bit, but they had real speeches against murderers uh, that were actual historical cases. This, one's a, this one is a made up speech, but the level of detail in it is uh, so impressive that it, it would be hard to imagine somebody could write this without having heard of other stories like it, like that were real, that had really happened. So in this, um, in this story, what you've got is a prosecutor basically prosecuting a highwayman, uh, but it's a lone highwayman, like we were talking about. And in this speech, sort of like with Nero, with what we have um, from another author about, about the Emperor Nero, Nero growing up, with this speech, we have even more specific detail. Oh, he, he grew up, he set fires, he broke, he broke into other people's houses, he, he committed violence against women, which is a euphemism for rape. Um, the, the verb that's used in, in Greek is often used for, for rape. So he started out with smaller crimes. The, the speech, the story literally says, 
as he started, he progressed from smaller crimes to larger ones because he never paid the penalty for the smaller ones. Uh, so people didn't catch him or they were like, well, slap on the wrist this time and please don't ever do it again. Uh, so the background of this particular person, again, sounds a lot like what you hear uh, in terms of, of serial killers' early lives. So uh, violence uh, that progresses uh, from being against objects and stealing things and abusing substances to attacking people. And then this, the story says because he never paid the penalty, he progressed to the heinous crimes that he's committing now. He lurks outside the city limits. He watches from a hilltop to see who would make a good victim and then he pounces and then he tortures his victims by giving them hope that he might let them go but then he and they're begging like they're begging like they're down on their knees begging him and then he just kills them and chops them into pieces and what's worse is he doesn't even leave the bodies whole in places where the families could find them and at least know that their loved one is completely deceased or be able to bury the body properly which was very important even back then uh so again the there's very little said about the robbery aspect the story focuses so much on the behavior and what we would call the psychological background of this highwayman who sounds so much like so many modern serial killers in terms of um his background and specific actions like the, it's torture and mutilation murder yeah and it would give you know potential prosecutors kind of a rubric in how to go after you know let's call it a lone wolf like that right yeah so staying with wolves um <laughs> and roads uh and you talk about um how people possibly potentially uh came up with these ideas of you know bands of wolves attacking and leaving the mutilated corpses and even supernaturally werewolves and vampires can you talk about that a little bit too it's the right yeah. season. <laughs> sure. I mean, this, this also relates to what we were talking about with the Stephen Sphinx earlier, mm -hmm. that it's not, it's not like my own theory that some of these mythical monsters uh, reflect serial killings. That, that theory has been tossed around for a while. And uh, John Douglas, who uh, was a serial killer profile for the FBI, uh, at one point said in, in his book, uh, Mindhunter, which they made it I, that's actually another show that they had a couple of seasons of. Um, but he said something to the effect that, you know, it's possible that tales of witches and vampires and werewolves, those kinds of, of creatures, it's possible that those stories that were being told and circulating around in early modern Europe were told because there were actually real people going around you know, committing mutilation murders, but people just didn't want to believe that their fellow humans could be capable of that kind of incredibly horrific behavior, mutilation murders, and of children too. So John Douglas said, you know, maybe some of these stories were based on real life uh, mutilation murders, and uh, but it just was like, only somebody who's only an animal could actually do that or only a supernatural force could could do that. And so there are other people who have looked at the, the Theban Sphinx as being a sort of a prototype of a serial killer. And uh, there's a, a scholar um, who also looked at the monster Grendel from Beowulf as possibly being based on a serial killer as well so I, again it's not like i'm the only person who's like uh, crazy enough to try to say oh the theban sphinx was a serial killer the point isn't again it's not that the sphinx the sphinx was absolutely a serial killer it's that there are elements of serial killing worked into a lot of these stories about mythological monsters whether they're like these hybrid you know monsters of greek myth or something a little more i don't want to say pedestrian exactly but you know vampires are werewolves that are more widespread and generic in a certain sense i mean the sphinx is a very specific monster werewolves and vampires are all over the place and i mean there are some famous ones you know like bram stoker's dracula but in general um we're you know there's a distinction between those and the specific monsters of greek myth that were fought by heroes so i when I was reading your book, um, you bring up Bram Stoker's Dracula, and it's been many years since I read that one, but, um, you know, everybody kind of knows the, you know, if you brandish a cross towards 
um, a vampire, then he'll, uh, you know, he won't, or she, you know, will kind of shrink or it'll burn. Um, but you also uh, talk about how people would take trophies. Um, the serial killers would take trophies even then. And we, we see that now as well, that's sort of part of the profile of serial killings. And it made me think of sort of, you know, um, medieval Christianity and how they would have, you know, relics of saints. And it's almost like this perversion <laughs> of an idea of, you know, religious idea, spirituality that is sort of, you know, inverted in the mind of these, you know, monsters that uh, haunted society too. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a really, that's a really neat way to put it actually, because even in antiquity, in terms of the relic idea, you know, and trying to distinguish that from, well, what about the trophies of serial killers? How is this, that, how is this different or similar that even in antiquity, there were relics of, uh, you know, famous monsters kind of thing, or it'd be like, oh, look, this is the skeleton of a centaur, you know, and, I mean, but they would, so they would look for these oddities and put them in museums or rich people would want to acquire just this sort of thing, like this is the bone from the Sphinx or, or maybe not specifically the bone of the Sphinx, but there absolutely were stories about that. Oh, they found a live centaur up in the mountains and they brought it down for the emperor. And now his skeleton, the skeleton is on display somewhere. So, um, so there, there were definitely relics uh, in addition to trophies. And, and as far as saints relics go, I mean, uh, I, I don't know what sorts of distinctions uh, we necessarily want to make, but in terms of how the saints died, I mean, because they were often executed, that's of course how they became saints in a lot of the cases, uh, but it would be more of a, a formal state execution um rather than say you know a, a serial a serial killing in terms of the here's a bone that the serial killer is keeping versus here's the bone of the guy who was martyred uh so there are certainly some similarities uh but in antiquity you've got stories of killers keeping the skulls of their victims and making shrines of them for example uh so yeah there's there are different motives but you know uh among the stories of keeping body parts especially if that's one of the things that you're um asking about is especially like the keeping of body parts right i mean i don't know i just thought it was kind of fascinating how serial killers have been doing that how you know and that was sort of something that was totally opposite from you know a, a religious a religious rite that people would do when they would go and travel the roads to a shrine of something, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, I mean, you know, the Canterbury Tales are, is a great example of a bunch of people going out onto the roads in a group to stay safe and yes. go see the shrine of Thomas a Becket, right? So, um, <laughs> Anyways, you don't talk about that in the book. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, I've, I've been to Can Canterbury Cathedral multiple times and I always look at that spot where uh, Thomas Beckett was supposedly, uh, was it beheaded or just attacked? I actually, I can't remember. But I do think they took his head off, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You'd think if I had been there multiple times, I'd remember, but the last time was a while ago. But, but yeah, so going to these, these spots where, you know, that was, uh, you know, that was a, a, a sanctioned killing, or maybe not, like, I didn't really mean for you to go and kill him, right? Isn't that what, what yeah. was it? Um, yeah. And um, so, but just going to visit the spot where something like that happened, I mean, uh, there is this this weird fascination with with killing and the circumstances of killing, and then what is represented by that spot or that person who was killed. And if it's, I mean, if it's an important person who's, who's killed, there's this, there's something different there. Serial killers tend to not pick famous victims, for example, there'd be too mm -hmm. much inquiry. Mm -hmm. So they, they will often pick people who they, I mean, this is why you hear about say prostitutes or homeless people being uh, victims of serial killers so much more frequently or black children, for example. Oh, society doesn't care as much about them. So there are gonna be fewer resources devoted to finding those killers. So it's a unfortunate and interesting difference. Right. But I guess fascination with uh, death, with um, crime has, is not new. <laughs> no, and it's, I mean, 
you know, because I mean, we're all sort of fascinated by death because we're all going to have to go through it and nobody really wants to think about it too much, uh, uh, you know, uh, depending on what your religious beliefs are, maybe. But it's like the manner of death has just been constantly a, a fascination. I just uh, and uh it's it's i don't understand the psychology necessarily enough to say why we are all you know why things like this tend to grab our attention hopefully it's partially because it's still relatively unusual um we pay less attention to deaths in war i mean there are thousands of people being killed in wars you know right. uh, very often but mm -hmm. those individual deaths somehow don't get as much attention as the oh you were a victim of a serial killer um, there's more notoriety, it's more unusual, it's less sanctioned by society. I mean, not that we think wars are great, but people do make the decisions to go to war or to defend themselves or what have you. When, where serial killers are sort of a mental, um, mentally different, um, not neuro, I mean, they, they just uh, think differently. And uh, it's something people would like to understand also, like, is there a way to prevent this? And I'm thinking, I mean, you had mentioned this, the Dahmer series that's on, and I actually don't watch much, much of those uh, reenactments, but I am watching The Patient. Have you seen mm. that one? The one with uh, Steve Carell as a therapist, and I think it's Donald Gleason. Uh, who is playing a serial killer who wants to not be one anymore. And wow. he has, he has, not, this is not a spoiler alert because it happens in the first episode. <laughs> um, so the serial killer has kidnapped the therapist and brought the therapist back to his, um, the serial killer's home so that he can have private sessions and try to get him not to kill anybody anymore. And that's, wow. that's sort of a new take. That's a really, um, you don't really hear about serial killers actually wanting to not kill anymore because normally it's it's a compulsion or a drive that they don't they're not even necessarily interested in addressing or curing if such a thing is even possible but yeah no this the show is really interesting um so it's very new i haven't seen it i have seen the preview but um a show that you do talk about is dexter <laughs> um, where similarly, he treats himself through this method of being within the the crime investigation, <laughs> and then he's able to inform how he murders. Um, I don't know if we'll ever be lucky enough to find a source that shows us <laughs> how fictionally, uh, you know, people dealt with through folklore tales or myth. Yeah um that kind of complication but um certainly i think all of this and your book included says a lot about how you know we still have problematic relationships to death to to violence and how it's really serial killers may be a newer term but the practice of serial killers is not new at all so mm -hmm. um with that, I just want to remind everyone who's interested in this really wonderful union of ancient histories, myths, and true crime to pick up a copy of Monsters and Monarchs, Serial Killers and Classical Myth and History by Debbie Felton. Dare I say it's cutting edge. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> you thank know you, what? Debbie. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. I, I think that I think what I could say is that um, it really is aimed towards a more general audience. I may be a scholar and a researcher, but what I try to do is public-facing scholarship. So, which is to make these old stories accessible to a broad audience. It was great. It was great. I love well, those. You, 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 that those are some great questions. Thank you so much for having me and for asking all those great questions. Of course, of course. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.